is an Odyssey original. This is KX in depth. I'm Rob Arch. And I'm Charles Feldman. Is the curse of the Titanic continuing? A deep sea mystery unfolding? We'll go in depth. A new poll shows Americans don't think very highly of our top three presidential candidates. So uh, why are the front runners? Uh, uh, why are they front runners then? Also, sticking your head in a freezer. What? Sticking your head in a freezer. Wait, why would I want to do that? Well, I guess we're going to find out, but it has something to do with sleep. You want to sleep by sticking your head in the freezer? I don't know. This is like a weird one. I'm not really sure what's going on here. We're going to get into this and explain this really crazy idea of sticking your head I mean, I'm in not, a freezer. I don't know about you. I'm not sticking my That's head in a freezer. But, but we start, though, with the latest, with the search and rescue of a missing submersible that was headed to the Titanic wreckage. Nomia Iqbal is BBC's North America correspondent. We're also joined by Ben Boss, Global Training Director for United Team Diving, which trains scuba divers. Thank you both for being with us. Um, Nomia, we'll start with you. What is the latest we know about this? Well, we're starting to get more information now. So earlier today, we got this tip-off that uh, this vessel had gone missing and we contacted the Coast Guard, the U.S. Coast Guard. They didn't all they did. All they confirmed was that a search and rescue operation was underway. But they've now confirmed that this submersible went missing more than 24 hours ago yesterday morning, about one hour and 45 minutes into its dive. So just uh, 900 miles east of Cape Cod. And, you know, for people who are wondering about these small submissibles, they occasionally take tourists who pay thousands and thousands of dollars to go and visit the wreck of the Titanic. And so we know that there were five people on board. And uh, so at the moment, they've got U.S. and Canadian Canadian naval surveillance aircraft searching for it. And this includes this really highly sophisticated P-8 uh, Poseidon aircraft with underwater detection capabilities. So, you know, this is, yeah. They are busy looking for this, and they have said that the Ocean Gate, this is the operator of the missing vessel, that uh, they are working towards a safe return of the crew members. And Ben, how deep would this vessel be, and how hard would it be to rescue anyone from that depth? I mean, well, yeah, sorry, sorry, go on. Go on, Ben. No problem. The, I mean, the depth is extraordinary deep, right? I mean, the, these are depths that only vessels can go to. I mean, um, we are scuba divers, so we can never ever go down there due to the fact that that equipment is just not equipped for that depth. So it needs to be inside uh, a pressure chamber, basically. Uh, Nomi, uh, let me ask you, so you had mentioned that they're, look, uh, that they're searching for five people on board that craft. And uh, if I read correctly, uh, the website from the company that runs this, uh, typically this uh, vessel has two people, I guess a pilot and I don't know, a navigator or a co-pilot, which would indicate that if they're looking for five, the other three are what, tourists? Yeah, they're essentially paying passengers. So these are people who are typically billionaires who can afford to to pay the price of going into this vessel. We understand it's not been confirmed yet that one of them on board is a British billionaire explorer called Hamish Harding. He went into space last year. And I can tell you that, you know, we've been in touch with the Foreign Office in the UK and they have confirmed that they are in contact with the family 
of a of a British man. Uh, there's also some other uh, reports, again, not confirmed, that a French Marine boss is on the vessel, uh, thought to be Paul Henry Nargillo, who's 73. And also, again, I do want to stress that it's just not confirmed at this stage, but I'm just letting you know what's being reported out there. Also, Stockton Rush, who is the actual CEO and founder of Ocean Gate as well, is said to be on board. Nomia, let's let's assume that they are stuck somewhere without power. Uh, how long do they have? Do you know? Well, we're told that this uh, Titan, which uh, which is called this five-person sub- uh, submissible, has a life support of ninety-six hours for a crew of five. That's 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 according to it's the Canadian Coast Guard and to if you look on the website as well. So ninety-six hours. And this happened yesterday, so the clock clearly is is ticking. Ben, uh, as a uh, professional diver and a, a trainer, right, of of other divers. Um, how risky are these kind of trips, do you think? I mean, obviously, these are not people who are diving. They're going in a in a vessel, uh, which presumably is designed to handle the pressure uh, at, at that uh, depth. But it, yeah. it still sounds kind of risky, is it? Exactly. Well, it is. It is very risky. I mean, that's, this is goes for scuba diving as well. The deeper you go, the more and more reliant on equipment you become. Because a shallow little scuba dive, you know, if worse comes to shove, you can put all the stuff you have with you on the sea bottom and swim up. Uh, so the deeper you go, the less and less of an option that becomes. And in this case, they're going so deep, they're 100% reliable on the technology on these vessels. Um, but they're also, you know, in, in that respect, built for that high level of risk. So, So as I understood... After 24 hours of no communication to the surface, the weights, the ballast weights of this Titan submarine submarine will actually drop, making it float on its own mechanically by buoyancy towards the surface. So, all right, uh, let's hope they're floating around somewhere. Yeah, and then finding them on the surface would be a better deal than uh, finding them somewhere still submerged. Uh, ben Boss, who trains uh, scuba divers, thanks for joining us. Also, uh, Nomia Iqbal with the BBC. Theater shows have been put on hold at the Mark Taper Forum in downtown L.A., and you can blame COVID for hitting the theater industry really hard. Megan Pressman is the CEO and managing director of Center Theater Group, which operates the Taper Forum, as well as the Amundsen Theater and the Kirk Douglas Theater in Culver City. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So a lot of people might be scratching their heads thinking, well, you know, uh, yeah, COVID is still out there, but we've kind of all moved on and and people have been, you know, going about their lives and traveling and having fun and doing all the things that we did pre-COVID. So they may be wondering, why is COVID having this kind of impact and what kind of impact is it having on theater in L.A.? Well, you know, I think you've hit it on the head where a lot of folks have moved on. We spent a lot of time both during the COVID shutdown and then as we all started to come out of our houses again, figuring out different ways to spend our time. And that's what we're still seeing at the theater is that even though a lot of habits have resumed, we're not finding audiences coming back in the numbers that they did before. And that's even if, you know, considering popularity of shows or audience response, we still get that kind of scoring and feedback. And what we see is that even very popular and well-received shows just have a a lower box office return or attendance than they did or would have had in, say, 2019 or before that. 
So if this is what happens in a city the size of L.A., is this an existential, uh, no pun intended, to be or not to be kind of a thing for live theater? You know, that's something that we've been fearing for some time. And it's and it's not just Los Angeles. We're hearing this from many colleagues around the country and that that, that they're really seeing this dip in the box office. So it could be that it's just going to take a longer time to recover and rebuild those habits. Or it could be that this is us learning that in the next few years, we have to figure out a different uh, total structure in order to sustain live theater. Is it uh, the legacy of COVID only or is it theater prices? I mean, you know, theater prices are pretty steep, depending on the show, I suppose, and where you sit in the auditorium. But they are pretty expensive. Is that part of it? You know, it could. Could be. Uh, we still have some, you know, very low price ticket options for everything. We have free tickets for under 25 year olds for the first few previews. We have, uh, every Tuesday, we give away $20 tickets to a whole bunch of shows, and those still sell pretty well. So you can see lots of different ways to get in, and that doesn't seem to be making up the biggest difference. But unfortunately, the irony is that, you know, with fewer people coming to the theater, it puts pressure on prices. So we're a little bit stuck in the mix right now. So we don't want to raise prices. We've been working hard not to do that. But we also can't afford to to do the work that we're doing unless either more people come or we get more donations or prices go up. You know, one thing that got people back in a movie theater, at least as far as the studios thought, was a big, huge uh, spectacles, a lot of CGI, a lot of special effects, superheroes. Would live theater owners be willing to experiment with things like augmented reality to get people back to see live theater? Say, for example, live actors on stage, but augmented by artificial reality, people wearing headsets. Or would that just be something too crazy for them to want to try? Oh, I think people are trying anything right now. It's it's kind of anybody's game. And we Theater folks have been experimenting and collaborating with folks in augmented and virtual reality even for a number of years, even before the pandemic. And I think Los Angeles is a great place for some of that to happen. And we've been we've been happy to talk to folks about how that could be a way we collaborate in space. I think that's just the spectacle is totally right. We've gone for big experiences. So when you have a really big name show, people come out. Uh, this year, we did a, a great lineup of, of noteworthy shows at the Taper. We still have one week left of shows at the Taper for Transparent, a musical, which is a huge, huge show for us. It's two to three times the size of a typical Taper show, and it's based on the Amazon series Transparent, and it's super fun. So we've been going for big to try and you know entice folks back. All right, uh, Megan Pressman, CEO and Managing uh, Director of Center Theater Group. Thanks so much for joining us. And a little bit later in the show, we're going to help you sleep better. But oh, not wait a minute. Hang show. on. It sounds, like show. We're, it sounds like we're putting the audience to sleep, no, Charles. Well, well, later. You know, now they have to be awake. Which but, I'm not above doing that. I'm just saying. I've heard you sometimes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I no. think I've been insulted. I'm not sure. No, no, no. no. But, but we will tell you. Anyway, uh, right now, though. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has visited China and met with President Xi. Uh, Ian Johnson is a senior fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Affairs. Ian, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So uh, I know when they went into this uh, over the past few days, when the secretary went to China, the word from the White House was it had very low expectations uh, that it was thought uh, that it would just sort of be a way of normalizing, if you want to call it that, communications between the uh, U.S. and China. Did they meet those low expectations or did they come back with more? 
I think they met the low expectations. I mean, okay. the fact that he went there and came back without any major problems occurring, that was already pretty much a win. Um, I guess the fact that he met Xi Jinping was itself not bad. Maybe that that wasn't a given going into the meeting. So if you want to look at it from that perspective then maybe they got a little bit more out than than they 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 might have otherwise um and you know they made the right noises and said the right things back in the olden days when it was the ussr and and we were involved in the cold where we were the two major superpowers everybody else bringing up kind of distant thirds but now china appears to have taken that spot uh certainly economically uh is there ever a way to find a rapport where these both super big powers can exist on the same globe at the same time without butting heads so much well, that's a great comparison because, you know, if you think of the Soviet Union, it had all the trappings of a major superpower. It had the nuclear weapons, space programs, and all these things that really scared us in the 50s and 60s and 70s and so on. But economically, it was a bit of a hollow shell. And China's gone about it the other way. They've built a strong economy and are now building on top of that foundation a strong military and space program and other things like that. So in some ways, China is a much more enduring challenge because it's really got the the backing, the the economic muscle to to afford all of that sort of stuff, the the aircraft carriers and so on that it's building in a way that the Soviet Union sort of really ran out of money. And so I think that, you know, the, the, the economic ties are, of course, important between China and the United States. That makes it also much more complicated than in the Cold War, where you could just sort of draw a wall around um, the East Bloc and, and just sort of uh, let it stagnate. Here, we're closely involved with China. So it's going to take much a much more sophisticated and delicate balancing act to coexist with China in a globalized world. Well, I was going to say, I mean, the fact of the matter is, and you touched on it, uh, more than it was ever the case with the U.S. and the Soviet Union, the U.S. and China need one another. There's no way to separate our economies from one another. I mean, half the things that Americans own, including our smartphones, are made in China. Uh, and a lot of the stuff that the Chinese like to buy in a rising middle and upper middle class are American companies, right? Yeah, no, it's it's not possible right now to, to separate the two. I think what uh, policymakers in, in Washington are trying to do is is protect the United States in the event of some sort of a war hostility that we're not completely dependent on China for everything, for critical national security issues and, uh, you know, material and things like that. But it's going to be hard to, to separate the two. And I think, as you said, China's dependent on us, too, because we're buying all that stuff, but they need to sell it to us for their economy to grow as well. So if there's if if the two sides are cut off it's not just our consumers that are hurt but it's also their whole economic system that's equally dependent on us so we you know we sometimes shouldn't forget that it's not just we who are dependent on them they're also dependent on us and we shouldn't give up that leverage i think when we're talking with them you know charles and you just touched on something here in the cold war we had this insane policy of mutually assured destruction we had missiles uh, aimed at each other, and we could wipe each other out, and the rest of the world, too. Now, some people think that that was insane, but in a weird way, it also kept the peace. We we never got involved in a nuclear shootout with the Soviet Union. So in the same way, though, we're talking economies now. It's kind of a mutually assured destruction situation between the U.S. and China. If China goes down, uh, our economy goes down. If we go down, China's economy goes down. So we're kind of uh, up between uh, kind of a, a wall here. We've got to to find a way to get along with each other, right? 
Yeah, I think we do have to find some way to get along with each other while sticking up for core principal interests of the United States. And, and one of those is defending um, it could you know could well be defending Taiwan, which is a democratic uh, island off Thai, off off the Chinese coast. And it might be similar in a way to, you know, we didn't have a shooting war with the Soviet Union, but we came close a couple of times, such as the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, when the, the Soviets tried to station missiles in Cuba and we sort of stared them down. And that was that was pretty close. Um, and we don't want to have something like that happen, but it could happen over a place like Taiwan. And so I think we're going to we we don't want to get into an economic war with China because it would be bad. But we have to be super careful about a shooting war, which is still a possibility. Mm, thank you so much. So, uh, as they say, history doesn't repeat, but it does echo. Uh, Ian Johnson, a Senior Fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. There's a new poll out from uh, GL Partners. It uh, seems to show a lot of voters don't have very nice things to say about the top three presidential candidates. Yeah, not at all. Voters were most likely to describe Donald Trump as a criminal, Ron DeSantis as a fascist, and, well, they expressed concerns about President Biden's age. He's 80. Don Hader Markle is a political science professor at the University of Kansas. Don, thanks for being with us. Good afternoon. So these are not exactly the words that if, if one were a political advisor to any of these three uh, people, the president, uh, Mr. DeSantis or Mr. Uh, Trump, these are not words that one would want associated with one's candidates. So what does this mean, that, that Americans just don't like any of them? <laughs> well, in, in, a, in a word, I would say yes, that, that no one is really too happy with the field of candidates um, on the Democratic side or the Republican side at, at this point. But in our current state of politics, especially since 2016, this has been repeated over and over again, that the negatives for all of the main candidates have been very high and positives never really seem to get above 42, 43%. Um, in particular, the, the notions about DeSantis and Trump, I think are especially negative for for Biden, the the notion of being too old and perhaps senile is the same kind of thing Reagan faced in back in 1984, and he overcame that pretty well. I think it would be better to know, in Biden's case, how many of those who think Biden is too old, what do they think of Vice President Harris? You know, I, I'm so often used to hearing about how whoever our presidential contenders might be, there's always like uh, people aren't happy with them. But that's really due to numbers. I mean, you're talking millions of people involved in politics in this country. And uh, you only get a very small number who rise to the top to run for president at some point. So you're just not going to find anybody who's going to be happy with any of them, especially, as you say, given our, our toxic atmosphere now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. Historically, you know, a, a Democrat's going to pull very few Republicans, a Republican's going to pull very few Democrats. That's just the, the way of the world. It's partly the way independents flow. But the big story here is, you know, do these negatives mean that folks like independents are less likely to turn out for the 2024 presidential election? We know that those independents are unlikely to vote in the primaries and caucuses um, and therefore not have much of an impact. But if it results in low turnout during the election, that typically is going to advantage a Republican candidate over a Democrat. So what what do political parties do, if anything, with the results of something like this poll? Do they kind of take it in stride and just say, well, 
left early in the game and people will change their minds and maybe other candidates will pop up and people will feel more you know, warm and fuzzy to those folks? Or do they actually take things like this and try to fine-tune their candidates to get better results? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is illustrative of the fact that the parties really have very little control anymore of who the candidates are running, especially at the presidential level, um, partly because of outside money and dark money being involved in politics. But the candidates are relatively independent of the parties in running for the presidency. So the parties can't do much unless they're willing to change the nomination system and give themselves more control over the system. Now, that's obviously not going to happen before 2024, and I don't foresee it's going to happen even after that. But that's really all they can do at this point is sort of shrug their shoulders and, and think that once it becomes a binary race, they'll be able to better distinguish their candidate from the opponent. Is there any way to fix this, uh, or is it just going to keep getting worse? I think in, in some ways it keeps getting worse. We've weakened the parties so much with the open primary systems, um, with even with the, the traditional caucus system, but the parties have very little control. And Republicans are especially disadvantaged right now because so many of their early contests are essentially winner take all. That it's it's like if a, if a candidate gets you know only thirty eight percent of the vote in in the Iowa caucuses, they they get all the delegates for the Republicans. The Democrats split up those delegates proportionately to the vote that people receive. So it essentially means even a negative candidate like DeSantis or Trump can essentially stack up some early wins and get an advantage going into the South, like South Carolina, going into Super Tuesday, et cetera. All right. Thanks so much. That's Don Hader. Uh, Markle is a political science professor at the University of Kansas. Ah, uh, sleep. Sleep. Mm. Uh, sleep. Oh, oh, sleep. Wake up. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Is something that can be elusive. Millions of people in the U.S. struggle to get quality sleep each night. Uh, that's got people drinking a lot of coffee, trying to wake up during the day when they get up. But maybe, just maybe, you should be putting your head into a freezer instead of drinking all that coffee. I never thought of that. This is uh, some pretty serious advice uh, from Eric Prather, a psychologist at UC San Francisco who treats insomnia. got a new book called uh, The Sleep Prescription. Thanks for joining us. Eric, uh, Eric are you awake? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, oh there okay. he is. Okay. <laughs> we, uh, thought, we thought you drifted off. So, Eric, <laughs> explain this putting your head in a freezer thing rather than drinking coffee. How the heck does that work? Yeah, well, you know, Coffee, caffeine specifically, can really mess around with our sleep. It can keep us alert. And so we're really trying to, to find something that uh, doesn't do that. And so there's lots of different things that you can do. We kind of played with it with that idea that we know that kind of cold exposure can certainly enhance alertness. It can increase your nervous system and keep people awake. And so maybe that's an alternative. But of course, you know, uh, a bout of exercise, say right after lunch, um, can certainly do that. No freezer required. But if you do the freezer thing, I mean, do you know how long one has to keep one's head in the freezer? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, we do do work at UCSF on what's called hermetic stress. And that's kind of the cold exposure is one of those things. Think of like a polar plunge. Now, certainly you don't want to keep your head in the freezer. It's really you can really just put an ice pack on your face. Um, it's just something to kind of increase that alertness so you can keep going and kind of hold off from having that extra latte. 
So when I've seen uh, people in movies do that thing where they try to wake up and get more alert and they stick their uh, face into a sink full of ice water. So that's really the same process, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, our bodies will certainly respond to that and can help you kind of experience that sense of alertness. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, you want to want to be careful, want to kind of uh, you know take it, uh, use your best judgment. But, you know, certainly that can do something and hopefully won't keep you up at night. OK, so that that's something or those are some of the things that could kind of wake you up, give you a jolt in the morning. What are some of the things that could more effectively put you to sleep. And and I know, you know, there, there's this stuff about, you know, not looking at your computer screen because of blue light, that sort of thing. Is there anything new that you found that would help people better sleep at night? I mean, I think the biggest challenge for, for a lot of people is they don't necessarily invest in their bedtime and their sleep routine the same way that they invest in, say, their nutrition or their exercise routine. And so I think the first step is to really carve out a clear window where you can transition right, where you can actually cue your body that, look, the day is over, we're turning the page, and we're allowing ourselves to wind down. And so lots of lots of things you can do to do that, right? You can read, you can spend time with your loved ones, you can watch a little bit of light TV, you can do meditation. All of those things can help people feel relaxed and ready the body for sleep. I think the important thing is making it consistent and really investing in that time. That transition is critical. We're not computers that can just shut down at the end of the day. We need that time to unwind and allow ourselves to get rest, get the sleep we need. So if you go the TV watching route uh, on your way to bed or while you're in bed, you watch a little TV before you turn it off and, and try to go to sleep. Is there a certain kind of TV that you should be watching a certain kind of TV show? Yeah. So the, you know, I mean, the, what we're trying to, the sweet spot we're trying to hit here is something that is kind of lightly positive, low arousal. So, you know, I find in my, with my patients that, kind of watching something that you've already seen before can be really helpful, right? So where you don't need to know what happens at the end and and it's not set up in a way where you kind of need to watch the episode. And certainly with streaming series, we can get caught in that loop. And so that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for something that is relaxing, kind of playful and something maybe you are familiar with so that you, you aren't kept up into the wee hours of the night um, to see what the ending is. You know what I always thought would work? You know how you're talking about TV, how when a TV show ends, they roll the credits, right? I always thought if someone invented a portable credit roll, mm -hmm. at the end of the night when you're ready to go to sleep, you would roll the credits, right. fade to black, <laughs> right. and then go to sleep. There you go. Eric, would that work? You know, I think it's worth testing. Uh, we're always <laughs> looking for research ideas, and I will give you credit if we get any true effects. Thank you. Right. Uh, what about having a cat? I got a cat, and the cat wants to eat. And the cat wants to eat at four o'clock in the morning and is not going to yeah, listen to reason. Yeah, I mean, lots, what do you do? <laughs> lots of people have trouble with this, whether it's your kids, whether it's your partner, whether it's your, your pet. And it's really about kind of trying to manage those things, right? I mean, in some ways, we're kind of built to be resilient, to have kind of sleep disturbances. And so, you know, we can kind of get through the day. I mean, you might need to kind of change your patterning to to, to better accommodate your life, but... Um, you know, I think one of the parts of this book that's really important is to give people hope that, you know, a lot of it is the worry about sleep itself that perpetuates the feeling of insomnia. And so, you know, ask any parent, we can get through these times of difficult sleep. Um, and as long as we're consistent and we keep a good routine and we kind of follow kind of these, you know, simple mm. things that that are outlined in this book, 
uh, the more reliable and restful your sleep will be. You know, Rob, if your your cat's waking you up at four in the morning so you can't sleep, put it in the freezer. I, I knew <laughs> you were going to say that. I knew you could say that. <laughs> well, good luck with the getting the cat in the freezer thing. Yeah. Um, you know, some other uh, pe- issues people are worried about. They, they get prescribed uh, sleep medications and stuff, and then they find later on that they can't sleep without the sleep medication, and it becomes a kind of anxiety. How do we deal with that? Yeah, that is so common. I mean, first of all, the the first line treatment for treating insomnia is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia before you take medication. And so ideally, someone would go that route first. Sometimes that's hard to happen. And so they're put on sleep medications. Um, You know, the good news is there are ways of tapering off of it. Um, You want to work with your prescriber to do so in a slow fashion, because it's true that if you kind of stop at cold turkey, often people experience what's called rebound insomnia, which is often much worse than their regular insomnia and kind of reinforces their need for this. Um, it's really common for people to come to our clinic on something and we can kind of work on getting someone's sleep consolidated uh, through kind of these behavioral techniques and then slowly taper them off. So there, there is kind of a, a light at the end of that tunnel, but it, it can be challenging. But I, I urge people to kind of look into the CBTI or cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia treatment. See, I've never been a good sleeper. And I think even going back as a kid, and this is true, I think it was because I always suspected that really cool things were happening in the world while I was asleep. So I wanted to be awake for it. And it's carried over all these years. That's, yeah, why, that's, that's I mean, probably that's, why he's yeah. in the line of work that he's in. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I find this with with a lot of people I speak to on the radio. They, you guys also keep, have to keep kind of really challenging hours. And I think there are people that kind of select into these types of jobs that are able to kind of deal with this. Their rhythm isn't so static that it, it causes a lot of problems. But, you know, I think there's a lot of great things that happen during sleep, too. So I would argue that kind of the benefits of sleep, kind of the magic that that happens for our body and mind are well worth um, investing in rather than kind of staying up to see what's going on in the world. All right. That's uh, Eric Prather, a psychologist at UC San Francisco, who wants to put us all to sleep. Of course, you can't invest, for example, in the market while you're asleep. No, you can't do you that. You have to be awake for that. All right. We're going to try to get some sleep here and do another uh, edition of KNX uh, In-Depth tomorrow.